from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Tim McLean a Baha'i from the San Francisco Bay Area. He grew up in a very religious and social activist family. When Tim went to college, his intention was to become a minister like his father. It was in college that Tim ran into the Baha'i faith. He left college after becoming a Baha'i and became a professional musician. In 1977, Tim went to Guatemala to help the Baha'i faith there. It was there that he first started producing Latin music. Today he is writing music for films. His website is timmcleanmusic.com. I started the interview by asking Tim where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in California. I was born in San Jose and grew up in, uh, you know, kind of central northern California. Very liberal atmosphere. My parents were involved in politics and in new thinking of all kinds of different kinds. They actually, NPR did a movie about all the people my parents that we grew up with, which are about those that were in, uh, they were conscious objectors during the Second War, and then they became involved in the Civil Rights Movement. I forgot the name of the movie, but my parents were not specifically mentioned that, but all of our friends were. Conscientious objectors in what war? In the Second World War. That's very unusual. So they, yeah, they were pretty unusual. And then if they either went to jail like my dad did, which is not cooperate with the system, or else they did alternative service of some kind. And then a lot of those people were involved in the civil rights movement, like my parents worked with Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez. So you grew up in a very liberal environment. Yeah, and my father was a minister as well. So tell me about that a little bit. I come from a very religious family. I'm an ancestor. I'm a Washington on my mother's side, and the ancestor was a cousin of George Washington who was a minister as well. So there's always been ministers in my family, and my family wanted me to become a minister as well. Indeed, my grandmother had a special ceremony dedicated me to God when I was six months old and reminded me consistently <laughs> until the time I went to college that I would become a minister one day. And what were your feelings as you were growing up? A little embarrassment, to tell you the truth, because I, all this you know, kind of showing me off. I was divided between that and politics because I was very interested in politics. When I went to school, I went to a Methodist school, University of the Pacific, and I was under full scholarship from the Methodist Church, but wanted to go into politics. Now, were the two mutually exclusive? I mean, going into, especially in your family history, where your family seemed to be very activist, religionists. My, I asked my mom about that later. You know, Jesus yeah. was a revolutionary. That was kind of their attitude, you know. So you were in college, and you were debating between politics and the ministry? Yeah. It wasn't a big debate until I, I was beset by all kinds of problems. It's every kind of the world. 
and a lot of personal problems. It was so devastating that I did a lot of prayer and meditation and finally agreed that I would do whatever God wanted, whatever the outcome might be. And I felt after all this prayer and meditation that the decision should be that I should become a minister. And as soon as I took material steps to do that, meaning change my course of study, sign up for certain programs like you had to have two ancient languages, I heard about the Baha'i faith immediately. I heard about it in a way, it was through friends, and for some bizarre reason, I prayed about it. And I got a good feeling about it. So you didn't have any negative reactions to it at all? Actually, I did. A year before that, was in high school, some, some people approached me about it, and I immediately put it out of my mind, thinking these guys are trying to take, take the place of Jesus Christ. And I didn't have two thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. It was just gone. And I wish I knew who those Baha'is were right to this day. So when you ran into it the second time, what, what was different about it? I don't know, other than the fact that I think that I was supposed to, because of this good deed that I had done, that I had decided to, to serve God in whatever way he wanted, you know. I don't really know what it was, but it was, some people say it was through friends, but maybe that was it. But what happened was that my friend said, he said, listen, you should seriously consider this because he claims the eternity of Jesus Christ. And I just, I don't know how, I just made the decision to go right up to my room right then and pray about it. And I went up there and prayed about it, and I got a very good feeling about it. It was so bizarre, and so I went right over and knocked on the door of the of the Baha'i who was going to school there. And this is like 1968. Was it 68 or 69? I think it was 68. Yeah, because I was 19 years old in Stockton, California. And I said, what is the message of the Baha'i faith? So the Baha'i goes, well, the message of the Baha'i faith, and, and this is going to sound a little weird because I've never heard this before or since. He said, the message of the Baha'i faith is that all mankind must turn to this message so as to avoid a catastrophe which has been predicted in the book of Revelations. And so I said, I said, um, so who is this Baha'u'llah? So he explained to me briefly that Baha'u'llah was a messenger of God which fulfilled the prophecies in the Bible. And so then I said, just like this, so I am to assume then that Baha'u'llah is the word of God. So he goes, yes. And so I said, well, may I see some of this Word of God? So then he gives me the Kitabi Gan. Why don't you explain to listeners what the Kitabi Gan is? Kitabi Gan is the Book of Certitude, which Baha'u'llah revealed to a very famous Baha'i who had not yet accepted the Baha'i faith. It actually was the uncle of the Bab, who was the forerunner of the Baha'i faith. And it's a great book for anybody to read. Do not do as I did. What I did was then try to use my father's explanations of the Bible. And a lot of Christians do this when they become Baha'is. Bad idea. I was kicked out of so many churches. <laughs> it was terrible, horrible. Why? Why don't, why, don't, why, don't, yeah, why don't you describe for me what you did that caused you to get kicked out of the churches? I did the typical thing, which is like, okay, guys, Jesus Christ has returned. This is what you've been waiting for for 2,000 years. And it just was horrible. On top of that, I didn't know the prophecies. One of the first things that Abdu'l-Bahá tells us is to go out and learn the irrefutable prophecies, which I didn't do. Now, who is Abdu'l-Bahá? Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of Abdu'l-Bahá, uh, son of Ahola, the founder of the Bible. Hmm. Came to the United States and was created a sensation everywhere, and gave us a lot of instructions. So after I got kicked out of all these churches, I went back and started doing all this hard work, which I should have done in the first place. What to do is take some answered questions and go through it 
and outline the chapters. Just go through them just like you're studying for a, a test in school. And in some of them, you can just get the essentials. For example, the big one, and I think this is the only one that I did at first, but it's called Traditional Proofs from the Book of Daniel. And this is important because this is the one that Jesus referred to when he was asked by his disciples. When he's going to come back, he says, look at Daniel and look at specifically at the uh, a portion called the Abomination of Desolation, spoke of Daniel by the prophet. And in it, it has something that early Christians used all the time to prove Jesus, which is a prediction of the crucifixion. It comes out exactly 33 AD. There's another prediction about when all the suffering is going to be over the Jews, and when Jesus is going to come back, it comes out exactly to 1844. And this is not just the Baha'i's opinion, by the way. Every Christian church all over the face of the earth came to the same conclusion around 1840. The other promise of Jesus Christ was, which was wait until the gospel had been preached to the whole world for, for a witness, had already happened. The American Bible Society, the English Bible or Messenger Society, uh, Missionary Society, and all announced this to the world, and that was the last place which is the center of Africa, had been reached, and they sent a missionary there, and it was done, it was over, and that was like 1842 or 43. So for those reasons, because of the numbers, the date involved, and because of that, those other promises, everybody was waiting for Jesus to come back. They were selling their things, they were buying ascension robes, and almost any newspaper, if you go out right to this day, you'll find it. Many religions started at the same time, either the Mormons, and all because of this messianic expectancy. And it, it caused such a sensation that it, this millennium has been called the millennium of disappointment, because they didn't see what they expected. And what is the Baha'i's interpretation of that event? Well, this is the beginning of the Baha'i faith. And, and let me just add, by the way, I used to be such a fan of the Seventh-day Adventists and used to have their books. They have a book called The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan. You get a copy, the first edition of that book, it has a diagram in there in which they predict that Jesus will come back in the third week of May, 1844. So it's not as though people didn't know about this. The problem was that they weren't looking all over the world. Obviously, Christians have a big prejudice against Islam, particularly now since the Muslims have started to go a little bit haywire and kind of berserk about stuff and get very violent. But the, the incredible thing is the fact that everybody in the world thought this, is not just the Muslims and the Christians, but everybody. The indigenous peoples all have prophecies that point to the same date. As a matter of fact, the whole world has this. They're just not talking to one another. So what happened in 1844 was that in, in Iran, which has the most specific prophecies, if you can get a person to look at this drama, there is nothing like it. I mean, the Ten Commandments plus the Lord of, Lord of the Rings. First of all, the people in Iran, the Shiites, have the most specific prophecies. They know what his name, they know what his name is going to be. They know the year. They know the tribe. They know how old he will be. They know specific details about his body. They know that he will be a non-smoker. All these things were part of it. And on top of that, in expectancy of this great promise to have God, there was, a, there was a very famous theologian who started a whole set of schools at which this whole way of looking at, at Muslim prophecy was, was studied in detail. And as a matter of fact, his last, his, his instructions to his disciples were, go out and search for the promised one. As you know, he's going to be here in 1844. 
and he predicted many events that were going to happen. He said, he said, for example, pray that you don't live to see that day, because it will be the cat. The catastrophe will be so horrible that only stronger people, stronger and than us, will be prepared for that day and age. It was very catastrophic, and so his disciples went out, and they found the first Baha'i prophet, who was the Bab, who immediately created a huge sensation and. In Iran, he had thousands and thousands of people followed him. Some people think as much as one third of Iran were his followers. But everybody, everybody knew about it. As a matter of fact, right to this day, everybody in the Middle East knows about the Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah and the Bab. And what was the catastrophe that this religious sect was talking about? What happened is that Iran is the most corrupt, especially at that day and age, was the most corrupt country of all, and it's. Religious leaders were, were the most corrupt, and they were absolutely had no defenses whatsoever against this new messenger of God. He denounced them as being corrupt. They sent people to argue with him, and he won them over. What happened is they had no other defense, so they rose up and they killed him and his followers. Uh, no one knows how many people died, but it's maybe even the hundreds of thousands. I know a lot of Baha'is say that 20,000 people perished, but when it was over... Yeah, the faith was almost completely silenced because there were a few Baha'is that were left, few of his followers. Baha'u'llah, who had come out of this, was in prison, and then they sent him in, into, into exile. So it was, it was a horrible catastrophe. It was horrible. Now let's return back to your story. You were reading this book, the Kitabi Igan. Why don't you describe a little bit what the Kitabi Igan is? Well, the Kitabi Igan is a word which means the book of certitude. And it does many things. Basically, the four questions which uh, the, the Uncle Bob asked Baha'u'llah, who wrote the book, was, and, and this is very important because everybody asks these same questions. When you say that Jesus returned or the prophecies have been fulfilled, they, everyone asks the same four questions, which are, the holy books say that certain things must appear. Why haven't I seen these things? It says that the Messiah will do the following things. Why haven't I seen this? It also says that the, the dead will be judged. It describes the judgment day. And why haven't I seen these things? So then, Baha'u'llah goes on to explain all these things. And it is very in detail. It's very precise. It's very beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of poetry and literature. Are you able to summarize what the answers to those four questions well, the first thing he says is he says that no man comes to the knowledge of God except if he is detached from everything that's on, on earth. And he says he has ears from idle talk and his mind from vain imaginings. And then he says, if you do so, then you will be blessed by a grace which is infinite and unseen. And then the doors of knowledge will open to you, things will happen, and you'll see things. And then he goes on to say that the reason why prophets of the past are never accepted, in spite of all these proofs and signs, there are always, there's always prophecies which they always fulfill, is because the opposition of the priests, he lays it squarely in their laps. And then he gives examples about kinds of things in the past. And the Baha'is are very well known for pointing out the reasons why people weren't accepted, like why Muhammad was not accepted in his time, why Jesus was not accepted in his time. And the amazing thing is Christians have stopped talking about these things. In other words, they, don't, they just don't have the same issues they did 2,000 years ago. But if you look at them, 
you find that the most prophets discuss the same things, like they discuss the meaning of heaven and hell and salvation and life, life eternal, etc. They redefine them. And so all these things are, of course, very important to our spiritual life. He goes into a lot of detail about the Quran and the, and the Bible, etc. There was one thing I wanted to mention from what I got from the Kitab i was that the prophecies that the people expect of the coming of the Messiah, let's say, we give Jesus for an example, since we're pretty much dealing with a Western audience, that the prophecies were interpreted on a physical level by those expecting the Messiah. So when Jesus exactly. came as a poor carpenter, apparently as an illegitimate son, to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it was like, this isn't the king of the Jews, as was prophesied in the Jewish Bible. However, after a time, this message of Jesus spreads, and the whole world accepts Jesus and accepts those interpretations of what those interpretations really meant on a spiritual level for the prophecy of Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, and uses these spiritual interpretations to prove why Jesus is the return of the Messiah for the Jews. Well then, now that the Christians are expecting the return of Christ, they again lay on the physical interpretation of these prophecies and the Baha'is are saying, well, look, you know, you use the same rules that you did for the prophecies of Jesus that you would of his return. And those are interpreted in a spiritual level. So when you're saying Jesus is going to return on the clouds, clouds are not the real clouds in the sky, but the clouds are the veils that hide the sun, the, you know, the beauty of the messenger of God returning. Now, you're right. The Kitabi Gun goes into a lot of detail about that. There is another book by Abdul Baha, who was the son of Baha'u'llah. When he came to the United States and to Europe, he answered many questions that the people had, and most of these things are from a Christian background. So this is a great way to kind of see the Baha'i point of view about Christianity. But in the Kitab Gan, Baha'u'llah says that it's always like this. In other words, there is a series of things which people always say, which is, for example, after our prophet, there will be no more revelation until the Messiah comes. It's, it's helpful to look at some answered questions to help try to understand the Kitabi Gun because I know one, one of the famous prophecies of all is that the sun and the stars will fall to earth. Well, Abba Baha starts out by saying, well, obvious, you know, if you look at the size of the stars, they're each uh, between 100,000 to a million times bigger than the sun. And so, therefore, the idea of the stars falling on the earth is absolutely meaningless. It's like 100,000 Himalayas falling on a mustard seed. There's no place to fall. And so obviously he means a spiritual thing, and then he starts to explain that this means the downfall of the laws, the downfall of the clergy, and other, other people who had great prominence in the lives of the public, etc., who were the examples and religious leaders, they, they fell. They don't have this moral authority anymore. And this is one of the most obvious things around us right to this day and age. So let's go back to your story, Tim. So when you asked for someone to show you, or your friend to show you the words of Baha'u'llah, what was your reaction? Well, actually, I said the Word of God. You okay, know, and So he, right. he was doing the right thing. In other words, like Sam, not that I accept that this is the Word of God, but what do you think is the Word of God? You know. So anyway, show me the Kadabi Khan. I didn't understand a word of it, none of it. So I said, can you show me something else? So he gave me the, the hidden words. 
The Hidden Words is another book of Baha'u'llah, which is an explanation in kind of little jewels, little four or five sentence groups, uh, the essences of all the spiritual teachings of all the religions. The first one goes like this, O Son of Spirit, my first counsel to thee is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. And when I read that, I realized this is these are not the words of an ordinary person. This is such as you'd read in the Bible. So I read that one, and, that's all, and I thought of myself, this, this sounds like what Jesus would say. This is fine. Read the next one, and I accepted that one. Three or four more, and all of a sudden I had this rush of fear, which was like a voice inside me saying, you do not decide whether the word of God is acceptable or not. That's inappropriate. So then I gave him back the book, and I said, that's fine. So then, in the next few weeks, he had me come, and I and my roommate went and studied with this guy. And we went through the Dawnbreakers. Now, what's that? And the Dawnbreakers is a book of Baha'i history, and it covers the period of the beginnings of the awakening of Messianic spirit in the Middle East, which is about 1790, until the passing of Baha'u'llah. It contains all the dramatic stuff that happened in the Middle East. A little difficult because of the names and the locations. But what got me about this is, is like, and I'm sure that every person that reads this will just sit up and say, I had no idea. Because you're not taught that this thing happened. There was something else that went along with this that I'll tell you that was sure. very important. And that is when Bala came to the Holy Land in 1868, he sent out letters to all the kings and rulers of the world telling them this is the message of God and that they had to turn to it and accept it. He waited a year, and only one of them had any positive reaction. That was Queen Victoria of England. Everyone else had a horrible, horrible reaction, very insulting. For example, Napoleon III received a letter, said, if this is man is God, I'm two gods. So then Baha'u'llah sent them the next letter back, and fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament about him judging and punishing the wicked kings and rulers, every single one of them was punished. He foretold exactly how in the second letter what would happen that Napoleon would lose his kingdom and would be, he would be imprisoned and would lose his kingdom and it would be thrown into chaos. And when I saw that, this really impressed me from a civil rights background because I thought, you know what, God really is punishing the wicked, which is what everybody on earth has been waiting for. But they just weren't the wicked ones I was thinking about. I was thinking that they should go after the, the, mm. the corporations, you know. Mm. Can somebody just go after the corporations, you know. But anyway, I was kind of in a daze. So I went on, and I went back to this Baha'i. He said that mankind has been given a certain time period in which to accept this message of God, and then this catastrophe would hit the world. So I said, well, how much time is mankind being given? He said, so he was really worried. He looked at his, his wrist and goes, <laughs> I think time's up. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean time's up? Just so you'll know what, what, what day it was, this was February of 1968. So exactly a hundred years after Baha'u'llah sent these these messages out. So I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's very nice, very nice. Now, you know, someday maybe I'll become a Baha'i. And tell them, have a nice day. I'll talk to you later. So the next morning we got up and went to breakfast. And at 7.15 in the morning, we heard the news that there was an earthquake in Turkey that night. And 20,000 people were killed. I don't need to tell you, my roommate and I were thunderstruck. We didn't even finish breakfast. We jumped up from the table, 
we still have Oh, my God, we better get over there before there's no time left. So we ran all the way across campus, beat on the Baha'i's door at 7.15 and said, uh, we want to become Baha'is right now. So he goes, I'm sorry, you can't become a Baha'i here. He said, you have to go home to your hometown and there in front of your friends and family declare your faith in Baha'u'llah. Now, I've never heard of that since. Have you? No, no. Yeah, no. I, I certainly didn't do that. <laughs> you know, no. I mean, I've never heard of that since. But I didn't know any other Baha'is. He's the faith, you know. Yeah, right. Since I couldn't exactly go home right that minute, I called my parents up. And so I said, Mom and Dad, have you guys ever heard of the Baha'i faith? Big silence. And then my mom goes, oh, my God, what great people these are. Oh, really? But, yeah. So my dad goes, what are you talking about? She goes, then she starts naming off all these Baha'is that they knew. One was a reporter from the Fresno Bee who would go to the civil rights activities and take pictures and so on and report on them. They liked that. For the first reaction, it was very positive. So later on that summer when I went home, I, I actually contacted the Baha'is and became a Baha'i. And what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, what I didn't do, which is I'm telling you, all you guys you should do, is I didn't... I actually asked the Baha'i, I said, what should we do? He said, well, you should study the irrefutable proofs. Well, I went out and tried to tell my Christian friends without having this stuff, without really being educated about what the Baha'i faith is. It was disastrous. My family was against me. My relatives, all these nice Methodists that I'd grown up for all these years, Tim, you lost your mind. Come back to the church, <laughs> you know. And so finally, after having this horrible experience for about a year and a half, I decided to go back and do the homework that I should have done in the first place. And then it was very positive. So what was the homework? Well, go back and learn some of those proofs out of the Kitabi Khan. Actually, mm-hmm. Shoghi Effendi, who was the guardian of the Baha'i faith, this is Baha'u'llah's great-grandson, gave a lot of explanations, very specific explanations of things. And he says that you cannot add to propagation of the faith, in other words, the spread of the faith, unless you're deepened in the literature. And then he goes on to mention the Kitabi Gan, the Dawnbreakers, and Abu Baha's explanation. So it'd be like some answered questions, Paris talks. And now, why don't you briefly describe what some answered questions is and Paris talks? Right. There were some American Baha'is that went to the Holy Land. I, I mentioned before that it was when he came to the United States, but that's wrong. They went to the Holy Land. And they ask a series of questions, and there were, there's a lot of them. And they're about Christian subjects, like, for example, the meaning of the Trinity, many religious questions like that. And what about the prophecies? When you read them, you'll be astounded to know a number of things. Like, for example, this is, this is stuff which I, as a Christian, I thought I had a great Christian education, but I never studied these things. For example, the idea of the return is clearly explained by Jesus in the first part of, of the book of John. Because one of the prophecies that was brought up by the early Christian, by the early uh, people who met Jesus, was that what would happen is that is that Elijah would return and he would prepare the way before the Messiah would come back. And Jesus refers to that. And then Jesus says, "But I, I'm telling you right now that Elijah's already returned." And they knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. So at a later point, they go over to John the Baptist and say, "Are you Elijah?" Jesus just said, and so John the Baptist goes just like this, "No." <laughs> So then they went back to Jesus, and he said the same thing. And then on a certain place at the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor, there's a certain place where the disciples came up, and all the prophets of the past appeared talking to Jesus, and among them was Elijah. And they made this connection with John the Baptist. 
blah, blah, blah. I asked, so, you know, is somebody lying here? Obviously, John the Baptist and Jesus are working together. You know, Jesus is saying that he is Elijah. It's obvious that, you know, from a Christian standpoint, not even mentioned by faith, that he means this is the symbolic, the figurative, the spiritual return of Elijah in the same way that the flowers come back every year. It's not the same flower. Spring is not, when we say spring is back again, it's not the same spring, but it's like a condition. And it's morning again, you know, that kind of thing. And it's very significant when it happens. That's what he means, and that's Jesus' explanation. But, of course, because of the fact that we can't see these things, we want something physical, and so therefore it's come to what we kind of expect is actual Jesus himself with robes on looking like the Mormon Jesus, whose picture we all grew up with would come out of the clouds and be on HBO, etc. <laughs> so anyway, there, were, there are many explanations like that which are in those books, Paris Talks and some answered questions, which you can find on the Internet or in any library. And Paris Talks is the book containing the talks of Abdu'l-Bahá when he was in Paris. So you were studying these. Yeah, so I went out and I studied them, and, and let me tell you what happened. One day I was working, I'm a musician, I was working in a music store in, um, in Fresno, and um, Fresno's kind of like the Bible Belt, at least it was at the time, this is 1977. And a minister, who was actually a musician, but I didn't know he was a, he was a minister, he'd written a book and lectured widely in the, in the churches, came up to me and said, Tim, I've heard you're a Baha'i, how can you believe that hogwash? And I said, <laughs> you know, because I just learned, I said, well, actually it's in the Bible, Daniel 9, 24, 25, and 26. Well... He was very educated in these Christian things and in the Bible, and so he said, that's not about the Baha'i faith, that's about the, the crucifixion, that's the prediction of the crucifixion. I said, yes, exactly. And 2,300 years later, it's 1844, the beginning of the Baha'i faith. So he goes like this, oh, he said, well, did he ever come to the United States? I said, no, but his son did. He said, well, did he ever come to Fresno? He said, well, actually, he passed through Fresno <laughs> on his way to Los Angeles to attend the funeral of the first American Baha'i. And he said, uh, interesting, he said, are there any people that remember him? And at that time, in 1977, there were many people in Fresno that remember Abdu'l-Bahá. And so he goes, <laughs> he goes, can I meet them? So in, this, in a period of three or four minutes, it went from, you know, this hogwash, to now he wants to meet the Baha'is. Hmm. So I felt that was my first little confirmation. It's working. Did you finish school? No, I didn't finish school. I lost interest in what I was doing because I became more interested in music. I was studying, you know, in political science, and so I left, and I went to the Bay Area, and I obtained a musical education there, and my musical career began at that time as well. Did you produce any albums and, or CDs? Oh, yeah, yeah, I produced quite a few. The, the ones that I've done were, like I did the Soul Train theme in 1975. I became, I was really, I liked R&B and jazz. In 1972, I joined the Whispers, at an old R&B group, they're still very popular, especially in, in, among black audiences. And we wrote songs when I was with them, and I became the musical director of the Soul Train theme. We appeared on Soul Train, the dance show, many times. The producer, Don Cornelius, liked this song, and so he picked it as his the next theme of the show. So we did a special recording. We did that. We did CDs for the Whispers, for the Soul Train gang. In 1977, I went pioneering to Guatemala, and got into the Latin market. I ended up producing a lot of Latin artists. I do a lot of that right to this day. So tell me what pioneering is. Well, the Baha'is don't have missionaries because 
The idea of a missionary is that you pay the person to go somewhere, whereas the Baha'is, when they go somewhere, they go to become one of the people to be with them. The way missionaries in the past really separates the people from the missionaries, and it's, and it's being a big source of irritation, especially in places like China. So you're going really to tell people about Baha'u'llah, about the Baha'i faith. So I went to Guatemala in Central America. Now, did you have a relationship with Seals and Crofts in the early 70s? You know, actually, I did. Seals and Crofts were looking for a piano player at the time, and I turned it down because I thought, you know what, I'm white, and I make more of an impact when I'm around, <laughs> around black people because they, they want to know, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> See, this is another thing your listeners need to know about the Baha'i faith. The impact of the Baha'i faith on, on just every kind of problem that you can see has been enormous. For example, when Abu Baha came to the United States in 1911, he told the Americans, he said, look, you should intermarry. Racism is your most challenging issue. He said, when, the, when black and white marry, it's, it's a union which is blessed by God. Just letting people know that is very impressive, because especially in the 70s, they weren't expecting this. So I decided, no, I'm going to stay with the Whispers rather than go work with Seals and Cross. What happened was, when I went to Guatemala, I worked with Bob Porter, who was uh, from Los Angeles, and he had a son whose name was Casey Porter, who ended up being my piano student. So that's kind of the way that I got involved in the Latin market. So when I came back, Casey had moved back to Los Angeles, and he, he is now one of the biggest producers in the world, producing Ricky Martin, Shakira, I think he got a he got a Grammy, and so I ended up working for Casey starting in about 1993. I worked for his publishing company. And what did you do? Because I speak Spanish, I was able to uh, let Latin artists know that we were that there were opportunities, and in, the, in uh, you know that American companies wanted to sign them and help them collect the royalties and want to get their songs and movies. I had a wonderful time. I worked for him for three years, 93, 96. And then what did you do after 96? Well, 96, I found my own publishing company. My partner and I spread out a little bit more and got involved in more publishing, and we worked for a lot of the dot-coms until about 2002. You know, the dot-coms and the whole, a lot of things kind of fell apart at that point. What was the name of your publishing company? Lewis Gregory Music. And why did you choose that name? Well, Lewis Gregory was a very famous Baha'i. He was African-American and a very, very articulate person. He gained a lot of notoriety, and mostly in the Baha'i faith, because of the fact that he had one of the first mixed marriages in the United States. In 1904, he was in Egypt uh, going to a Baha'i summer school there with a friend who was white from England, and Abu Baha, knowing that there were, it was very hard to have a mixed marriage in the United States, but if we did this, what a big impact it would make. As the head of a religion with the authority to do so, he married them. They were very, very strong, independent people, and, and so their marriage was able to survive in the very unfriendly climate of the early 1900s. But he made a huge impact on thousands and thousands of people, and a lot of people learned about the faith from, from him. So you named the publishing company in honor of him? Yes. Was there a mission with this particular publishing company? No, the publishing game wasn't very successful because of the fact that there are so many problems in the music business. One of the problems that I've had in my business is not really having the education to know how to do the business side of it. One of the things I've kind of learned in my old age is that if you 
work with your parents or a mentor, they show you how to do the how to become successful, whatever you're doing. Meaning that, as a musician, I was very successful, but earning the money from that was the, the difficult part. Knowing how to collect it, knowing how to handle the business problems, knowing where the money comes from, that kind of thing. I, I didn't know any of this, and I learned all this very, very late in life. So my partner, who was a businessman, was from England, but he had plenty of problems of his own. So the company still exists, but it's pretty inactive. The musicians have a saying, which is that music is five percent. The music business five percent music and ninety five percent crowd control. If you learn that, then you're successful at it because it's a business like everything else, you know. So what I'm doing now is I'm writing for movies and film. I've been helped. I have a number of mentors who've helped me show how to get into this, and so I have a website which is timmclainmusic.com. T I M, capital M C L A N E music.com. So everything everything is going well. I I'm not completely exposed to the market. Started this about six months ago. So what were you doing between 2002 and then? Well, I was doing some publishing, a lot of playing. There's videos of me on the website playing with various people. You know, I taught music. I've been a music teacher for about 40 years. What were some of the movies that you did music for? I've done a few infomercials, and I've done some. I've done a lot of ads. They they even still have my stuff playing in Central America. I've kind of learned. I'm, right now, I'm, I'm finishing my samples, which means that I have to have different kinds of music. Some of, some of it's done, and you can see it on the website. But I have to finish the compositions, and I have to, you know, arrange for the orchestras and or the musicians that I need. And it's a pretty extensive. Pro- I own a studio, so that helps. You know, one of the biggest projects I ever did was I produced the top singer entertainer of mainland China in 1993. She was put together with me by friends. We had mutual friends. She was looking for an American producer. It was one of the most exciting experiences I ever had in my life because I learned a lot about China, about the music, about the people. The artist became a Baha'i in the process. Her name was Lin Cheng. Her concern was for the rights of the women in China. And China is very behind the times in that regard. When couples are divorced, the women don't get the kids. The men always get the kids. Lin was very concerned about this and wanted to know what she could do. So kind of while the whole recording was going on, we met with a lot of people from China. We met with a lot of former uh, exiled cabinet-level officers of the government, actually, who had been kind of kicked out because of Tiananmen Square, and told them about the Baha'i faith. And, and she, she saw it as something that the Chinese would really like. Are you still in touch with her by any chance? We talk from time to time, absolutely. I saw her about a year ago at the Baha'i Center here in Los Angeles. And we exchange emails from time to time. She adopted a child, I guess, about two years ago, something like that. So do you have any plans for the future that you would like to see come into fruition? I'd like to get the movie thing going. I think mm-hmm. if I could just do that. <laughs> I have to tell you one, one story. Sure. As a piano teacher, I, I teach a lot of people in Beverly Hills because they have the money there and their kids being educated. I taught this one family who was very, very wealthy, but I had, a, I had no idea how wealthy. So the wife calls me up one day and says, Listen, Tim, I was kind of thinking about canceling music lessons because we're having a fundraiser at the house. But then my daughter's protesting, so please, I'll see you Wednesday or whatever, whatever day it was. She says, You're going to see a few red coats, but just ignore them. We're just having a little fundraiser, right? Well, that was the understatement of the year. There was about 60 valets or parking cars 
everyone was there. Arnold was there. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, yes. Gray Davis was there as former governor. There was um, Diane, Senator Diane Feinstein, tons and tons of movie stars. Senator Diane Watson, just so many senators and, and important people, VIPs of all kinds. So I walked in, and she has this kind of big, huge entrance, but then you walk to the side that goes off where the bedrooms are, where her daughter's piano was. So as I was walking through, she was sitting in her chair. This is the lady of the house. She, by the way, is from Haifa, Israel. They're both Jewish. He's Jewish-American. She's Jewish from Haifa, from, from Israel. And she was sitting with her back kind of turned to me, talking to Diane Watson, Senator Diane Watson, Senator Diane Feinstein. Because it was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish holiday, as I walked by, I said to her, Happy Rosh Hashanah. So she goes, she goes, she kind of raised her eyebrow and goes, Oh, you are? She was like, it's like, don't tell me you're Jewish. And so I said, No, I'm, I'm uh, Baha'i. And so she, she just changed her personality. Oh my gosh, she turns it. She just turned the chair around, the hell with the senators. <laughs> so it was almost rude because the back of the flu, the chair just flew up in the face of the two senators. So they were like creeped over the back of the chair, like, what's going on? And she goes, and she just like went, just shot, you know, like a shotgun, like, you know, 50 questions. I never knew that you were Baha'i. How come you, you never told me this? You know, I'm from Haifa, you know, and how long have you been a Baha'i? And, and, and how come you never told me? And just on and on. <laughs> so, so the senator's like, what is this? So we talked very briefly, and then I had to go do the piano lesson. The Jews that have been Israel love the Baha'i faith. And one more story, unless I've used my time up here. No, no please. I was great. in Central America. I, I did the same thing I did there. Was I, I do demos for a lot of singers, you know, because they have to show what their song is going to sound like when they send it to a publisher or to an artist. So there was a, a Jewish family there that had a big plastics factory. And their daughter came over to the house with her mother and her father, to kind of meet us because they wanted to use my services in this recording. So at the time, we lived on a second-story apartment, and in order to walk up to our door, uh, you pass by this, this hall and where we had huge photographs, like four by, four by three, four feet by three feet, of the gardens on Mount Carmel in Haifa, in Israel. You're talking about the Baha'i International Center. The Baha'i Shrines, that's that's correct. The Baha'i World Center on Mount Carmel in Israel. When the daughter saw that, she goes, just came before, she goes, oh my God, I was there. She goes, what a wonderful experience, she said. You know, it was was great. And she's telling me how wonderful it was, you know, she's like selling me my religion, right? So I'm, I'm like kind of looking at her like, okay. So then she goes, you don't believe me. Let me call my mother. Mamita! So then the mother comes over, and she goes, and she before the daughter could say anything, she saw the pictures. She goes, oh, my God, what an experience that I had. There I was in the middle of the Baha'i Gardens. It was like I was in heaven. <laughs> she goes on and on and on like this. This was Guatemala? Yeah. What were the reasons that you left Guatemala? Well... It was very difficult living in Guatemala in the 1970s because we were basically in the middle of a civil war. There was a lot of killing going on. If you were not involved in politics, which I wasn't because I was a Baha'i, Baha'is are supposed to stay out of politics at all costs. And why is that? And if you're not, well, because, it's first of all, it's a huge threat to the Baha'i faith anywhere because they're just looking for something. A lot of these Muslim countries depend on the Baha'is. Secondly, it's not the way that we should solve our problems. 
meaning partisan politics is what the problem is. It's not being interested in civil rights or in the environment or other social causes, but it's joining a party and then fighting about it. In Central America, it comes to physical violence very quickly. It is not quite like that in the United States, but it still pretty causes a lot of dissension. As long as you're not involved in politics or making a lot of money, you're not in any harm's way. No one's after you. You're not anybody's eyesight. But nevertheless, you know, we saw assassinations. Civil disturbances would go on pretty frequently. So we ended up leaving. The doors kind of closed, so to speak. All my opportunities just dried up within a couple of months. The war in Nicaragua meant that nobody was in investing in advertising, so therefore my jingle business went to hell. A lot of things just dried up overnight, and so I had no more income. So that was so we, we left Guatemala and went back to the United States. And I was sad because Guatemala was such a wonderful place for me. Well, Tim, thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, my pleasure. It's one of the two subjects I love to talk about the most, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim McLean, a Baha'i and professional musician. I would like to play some of his compositions. The first composition is called If I Had to Live My Life Without You. The music is by Tim and the lyrics are by his wife, Jackie. The lead singer is Kristen Barnes. Here is If I Had to Live My Life Without You. If I Had to Live My Life Without You, music by Tim McLean and lyrics by his wife Jackie. The lead singer is Kristen Barnes. The next piece I want to play is an instrumental composition by Tim McLean. It's called Escape from Nagaland. He says that it was written for a friend who rescued his wife and brought her back from Nagaland. They live now in Bombay, India. Here is his instrumental composition, Escape from Nagaland.
That was Escape from Nagaland, an instrumental composition by Tim McLean. The final piece by Tim McLean that I would like to play for you is called Isfahani, which was composed for film. Here is his instrumental composition, Isfahani. Thank you. 
That was Isfahani, an instrumental piece composed by Tim McLean. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tim McLean and the music that he produced. His website is timmcleanmusic.com. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.